0: Welcome to this installment of witness to yesterday the podcast of the champlain society my name is nicola byrne and i'm a legal historian at the faculty of law university of new brunswick which is located on the unceded and unsurrendered land of the Wolastoqiyik. today i will be interviewing daniel rook about his book the law and the land the settler colonial invasion of kanawake in 19th century canada published by UBC Press for the Osgoode Society for Canadian Legal History in 2021. The Laws and the Land was awarded the Best Book in Canadian Studies Award by the Canadian Studies Network and was co-winner for the Best Book in Indigenous History by the Canadian Historical Association. Daniel is an assistant professor at the University of Ottawa, where he is cross-appointed in the Department of History and the Institute of Indigenous Research and Studies. He is a settler scholar living and working on the unceded territory of the Algonquin Nation alongside the Kitchissippi, also known as the Ottawa River. He teaches the history of settler colonialism, Canadian Indigenous relations, environmental history and legal history. His research concerns land tenure and land use on Indigenous territories with a focus on Indigenous legal orders. Daniel obtained his PhD at McGill University In fact, his book is based on the research he did for his doctoral dissertation there. Thank you for joining us on Witness to Yesterday.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: The Laws in the Land tells a story of how a settler state appropriated Indigenous lands and interfered with Indigenous government and law, through the experience of one Indigenous community in the 19th century. What are some of the themes that emerge in your study?
1: Well, the book is a history of Canada-Indigenous relations, and it focuses very specifically on this one relationship between Canada and Ganawage, a Ganiangihaga or Mohawk nation near Montreal. Um, So I argue that settler historians of previous generations have massively overemphasized the orderliness and lawfulness of Canadian colonialism. And so I talk a lot in the book uh, and emphasize the sort of chaotic nature and disorganized nature of Canadian colonialism from indigenous points of view. And so much ink in Canadian historiography has been spilled to assert that Canada's territorial expansion was orderly and nonviolent compared to that of the United States many, many books in Canadian history make that particular argument. Um, And of course, there are ways in which that that's true. But I argue in the book that that's massively over-exaggerated. Indigenous people have really vociferously and long disagreed with this kind of a framing. And some of the new historical research that's recently coming out is confirming that the difference between the Canadian colonialism and US colonialism has been greatly exaggerated. And especially from the point of view of the colonized people, Canada's land theft and violence of resource extraction, destruction of indigenous families, violence against children, just to name a few examples, are anything as violent as what indigenous people experienced south of the border. So my book does shine a spotlight specifically on the legal and environmental chaos in Kahnawake that was caused by colonial interventions. And it's just one of many, many stories of this kind across the continent.
0: You started working on this project during graduate school. What initially drew you to the subject?
1: I, I started by doing my master's research at McGill in uh, on the history of the Dominion Land Survey, uh, which was the, uh, the survey that divided prairie lands in everything from... Um, from Western Ontario all the way into British Columbia, according to this one uh, legal and geographical system called the Dominion Land Survey that cut everything up into a checkered board survey. And I grew up on the prairies, and so I was interested in who was responsible for that. But in the process of studying uh, where this came from, I became aware and conscious of the importance of land surveying as a technology and technique of indigenous dispossession. And so as I was doing my master's research, this really sort of dawned on me in a way that it shouldn't have, because I should have known that before, but it really grew um, in my consciousness so that uh, for my PhD, I wanted to continue that kind of research to look into uh, questions of uh, settler colonialism, and uh, indigenous dispossession uh, in the context of land surveying. Um, and one of the great things as a historian looking for documents is that land surveys produce a lot of documents and produce a lot of um, numbers and pieces of paper. And they're kept because the, uh, most governments consider land surveys to be very important, so they're kept in our archives. So there was lots to work with there. And I was living and working in Montreal and decided to work on a topic that was nearby where I'd be able to get to know people and where I'd be able to do something that had relevance for where I lived. And so I began to work on uh, questions around land surveying and um, the history of private property in Kahnawake and the region uh, in, in the, these Montreal suburbs.
0: You've talked a little bit about studying the Dominion Land Survey and then how that evolved into your PhD uh, studies, but how did your thinking about these issues change?
1: Well, one thing that was really important for me in terms of my thinking was to have more frequent and more intense interactions with Indigenous scholars And that's not something that I'd ever... My education didn't include any of that up until that point. Uh, In fact, I went through my education at one point trying to find anyone in my memory, any teacher that I'd had who was a racialized uh, teacher, and all of my teachers all the way through until graduate school had been uh, white. And so I uh, was kind of shocked to realize that about my own education... And the kind of um, problems that might arise because of that kind of an education, and so I felt like graduate school and beyond has been me trying to undo some of that, um, some of that learning by really uh, delving deeply into the scholarship of indigenous people and of racialized scholars. Um, and uh, the other thing that I was able to do that changed, that changed my perspective, and it's not just something I did, but it's something that was growing at the same time. The field of studies of settler colonial studies was really growing at the same time while I was in grad school. And I was able to sort of tap into that as a way of, uh, of helping to understand some of the processes that I was, um, that I was looking at.
0: Great. Can you tell us about your relationship with Brian Deere? How did he inspire you?
1: Yeah, so I dedicated in part the, the book to Brian, um, who was a, a mentor and friend to me. He's a Kahnawake elder, a scholar and business person. And for some reason, he, some, he believed in me. I, I don't actually know exactly why, but he told me that he appreciated the fact that I would listen to him when he said something. And uh, he felt that I was willing to adjust my research agenda based on what I learned from listening. And so I would say, like, Brian was important to me. I've often spoke to him and visited with him and discussed all kinds of topics with him, including my research. And there were times when I would share something I intended to publish with him and he would make suggestions and I would often, um, each, each one of those, they didn't always feel good when someone says don't do this, do this, it doesn't always feel great. But each one of those is a, a learning moment. And I would say that's something I learned as a young scholar through my engagement with people in Kahnawake was to try to try to overcome my own fears with an open-hearted way of engaging with people. Because usually what I would sense in myself was a fear when I would approach people about a certain topic. And my worst fears almost never came true. Um, And what did happen was that people would say things to me that I needed to listen to. And if I was able to listen with an open heart, um, that was usually a good thing I found. And and I hope that my scholarship um, is much, much better Uh, for for having had those kind of interactions.
0: In the introduction, you mentioned historian Frederick Jackson Turner and the frontier thesis. Can you briefly explain this thesis and how the idea of a frontier has evolved since he gave his famous, or maybe more accurately, infamous paper at the Chicago World Fair in 1893?
1: Yeah, Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis is so well known to American historians um, like most people who go through uh, grad school, as American historians, would, would know his frontier thesis very well. And it, it's, it's, you know, 130 years old at this point. And, uh, and for, for generations, uh, historians are very excited about it and believed in it. And more recently, people have been countering it, offering alternatives. And what he was arguing at the time in 1893, because um, American colonialism had, you know, to, it, in terms of geographic um, movement, the United States had moved across the continent, had taken over all the indigenous land. Uh, Indigenous people at that point had been, uh, were largely confined to reservations and um, most land was now privately owned or owned uh, by the government in the United States. And he felt that the frontier, this place of violent interaction or tense interaction with nature and with indigenous people, Uh, was uh, a a boon to American life. In fact, he saw it as uh, as the frontier as at at the center of American culture, individualism, capitalism, and democracy. So he was really worried at the time that the frontier was closing, there wasn't any more land to take, there weren't any more indigenous people to conquer. What would become of American individualism and democracy uh, without that that frontier, so he shouldn't have worried because America went on to to do this to the rest of the world as well. But um, I, I'm I'm saying that a bit tongue in cheek. Um, but there are people who make the argument that the frontier continued across oceans afterwards for the United States. Um, but uh, what the argument I make in my book is that um, I don't think about frontiers as a, as a straight line or as, or as a continuous line. I think about many, many frontiers um, that, and that they don't move at a steady pace or only in one direction and that they can look very different across time and space. And that's why I think about frontiers as still happening today. I think about about the different boundaries between, between settlers and indigenous people, both physical boundaries on the ground, like at the edges of reserves, for example, but also in the, in the ways that we think, in the way that it's difficult to communic- communicate across linguistic and cultural boundaries often. So I still think that, um, that those frontiers still exist. And I, when I wrote this book, I was thinking about Ganawage as a place Uh, even though it's way behind the frontier that uh, Frederick Jackson Turner was thinking about, it's still an indigenous place. It's an indigenous nation operating according to its own laws um, at at a time when uh, Turner would have been thinking about the frontier as being way far far away. Um, So I just wanted to complicate that idea of frontiers. Some people reject the idea of frontiers completely. I think it's still... Uh, can be useful because I think about the frontier as something inside of me um, in a a sense that I'm sort of battling it out inside myself in particular ways, but also a frontier between people. I think about a frontier in a classroom between different people with different views. Um, So I think that that's, um, that's something that I was thinking about as I was writing the book.
0: In the book, you explore the fundamental changes in indigenous state relations that occurred during the 19th century. Can you describe some of the major trends?
1: Yeah, at the beginning of the book, I, I started in sort of the late uh, 18th century um, at a time when one could describe what had existed up until that point in, in, uh, in indigenous settler relations as legal pluralism. And so legal pluralism, for those who don't know, is uh, a state in which um, different legal systems can exist simultaneously in the same territory. Perhaps certain laws uh, apply to some people and not to others. Um, There might be uh, ways in which these two systems overlap, but... um, Indigenous law in in the St. Lawrence Valley, or what was uh, then known as Lower Canada, was applied to Indigenous people. So Indigenous people lived according to their own laws, and the colonial government acknowledged this, and settlers lived according to colonial law. And so... Um, if there were um, if there was uh, some kind of crime committed by an indigenous person, usually that person would be judged accord- by their own people according to their own ways. And similarly, um, uh, if a crime was committed among indigenous people by a settler, that per- that settler would usually be taken uh, and judged according to a- by a colonial court. So that's the beginning of the book, and I show in the book how that. Um, legal pluralism falls apart and is undermined um, by the Canadian state, or the, you know, in some cases it's not Canadian yet, it's a British state. Um, but there's increasing interference uh, in Ganawage affairs and Indigenous affairs um, by the Department of Indian Affairs and by other colonial uh, governments. There's, a, over the course of the 19th century, the, which is the period that the book covers, There's a big growth in the uh, bureaucracy at the Indian Department, so there's a lot, lot more people who can do a lot more things, even though the Department of Indian Affairs was always known to be an um, under-resourced government department. But it was still growing exponentially along with the rest of the Canadian government over the 19th century. And then, of course, the uh, 1876 um, establishment of the Indian Act um, which was not the first uh, such law, but it was a law that brought together all the previous uh, legislation in, in, in a particular way. And then I discuss all the different, various different iterations of the Indian Act. And, and a- after the late 19th century and into the 20th century, each iteration of the Act became more coercive and more intrusive in indigenous life. Um, and one of the things that I discuss in chapter seven, especially of the book, is the imposition of the band council system in Gunawage, which was done coercively and against the will of the community. I describe in detail how it was done and ways in which traditional government was made impossible for people in Gunawage by the Department of Indian Affairs, and the ways in which people were deceived into accepting this new form of government. The basic trajectory of the book is this increasing interference, attacks on Indigenous sovereignty over the course of the 19th century.
0: You describe the administrative approach taken by officials of the Department of Indian Affairs as, quote, effective inefficiency. Can you give us a particular example of that?
1: Yeah, so that term is is one where I'm taking issue with the way a lot of people think about how colonialism happened. And I think it's because partly the way that evil, I think, is portrayed in films and and in popular media of this easily identifiable force that's very powerful, that comes into people's lives and just wrecks things. But it's always very powerful with a very particular plan. And people who are being impacted by whatever's happening don't have any options uh, because everything is so well planned out. And sometimes I think that's true that things do happen that way sometimes. But the, what I saw in, in the way Canadian colonialism worked was something much, much more confusing, um, but also uh, very effective in its own way. So that's when I read um, Yael Berda's work, she's a, a sociologist and lawyer, who has written on legal aspects of the Israeli permit regime uh, which restrict P- uh, Palestinian people's movements. So she came up with that term, um, effective inefficiency, to describe the way Israeli law works um, against indigenous people in Palestine. So uh, for Palestine, Palestinians living under Israeli colonial administration, the difficulty of navigating the constantly changing bureaucratic landscapes, she says, amounts to bureaucratic cruelty. And so, uh, and, and, and I think that the Indian Act uh, and the way it's been implemented by the Department of Indian Affairs can be said to have had a similar impact on indigenous people in Canada. And so, what, some of the different ways that this kind of ineffectiveness uh, can be so brutal is that people may, for example, have um, be waiting for a long, long time for an answer from uh, the Department of Indian Affairs. And we see this at the beginning of the establishment of the band council system, where uh, the Department of Indian Affairs uh, invested a lot of energy and time into making sure that the system was completely undemocratic. Um, The way that band councillors were chosen uh, was a complete Farce, in fact, where almost everyone in Ganawage was disenfranchised, except for those who were more likely to vote uh, for candidates that supported the department. So, um, but even after they would re- they would get a band council that was sort of in their favor, the Department of Indian Affairs would still not answer any of the correspondence from the from the band council. Um, and so even these new band councils that were supposed to be this new form of government that was supposed to um, be useful to people, was supposed to prove to people that this this new modern form of municipal government was going to be very useful and effective, the department was so inefficient that it didn't even respond to any of the things that the, um, that the council was doing. And so they were actually able to do nothing. So it, you could see that... It both undermined the agenda of the department, but it also reinforced the agenda of the department because people in Ganawage were in this constant limbo of not knowing whose law applies. Their own laws were clearly um, being undermined by the department. The department was trying to bring in Indian Act law, but was either under-resourced or intentionally not doing what they were supposed to. So you could really see how people in Ganawage in the late 19th century, we're really uh, in a difficult place um, in terms of uh, not knowing what to expect uh, in terms of being able to run a business, trying to sell a piece of land, trying to uh, get a job, all kinds of things that would have been held up by the effective inefficiency of the Department of Indian Affairs.
0: As you've already mentioned, one of the major themes in your book is the chaotic displacement of Indigenous legal orders by British and Canadian law. Can you tell us more about how colonial law, such as the 1876 Indian Act, was used to subjugate Indigenous peoples?
1: Yeah, I think, I think people who don't know much about the Indian Act should really know that the Indian Act was explicitly created to extinguish Indigenous people. So the point of it was to try to transform Indians, which is uh, the official term that's used in the Indian Act, to turn Indians into non-Indians. That's the whole goal. So there were these uh, there were these um, enfranchisement provisions that were built in to uh, to make it um, at first voluntarily, but then when nobody, not enough people did it, they would could make it compulsory to become enfranchised, meaning that you would no longer be an Indian. So, that's one of the ways in which the law was made to extinguish um, people's indigeneity uh, individually, but also there's lots of ways it was trying to do it collectively as well. And one of the things I point out in the book is um, the ways in which land was used as part of the enfranchisement process. If someone decided to or was involuntarily enfranchised, they would have access to a certain number of acres of land, which would be taken from the reserve. So every time a person was enfranchised, it would um, take away land from the community's land base. So that's just one example, but we can go down the list of residential schools, which were created through the, through the Indian Act, uh, compulsory uh, attendance in, in residential schools, and ways in which that the law allowed the government to, to rip students, uh, uh, children away from their parents. Uh, it imposed ban council government to replace Indigenous government. It made ban councils accountable to Indian affairs instead of to its own people. It imposed Canadian membership rules that superseded Indigenous laws about who belonged and who didn't belong in the community. It imposes, and I should use the present tense here too, because it, it, it's still on the books, right? And that one of the things that people don't often emphasize about the Indigenous law, uh, about the Indian Act, is that it imposes the same law on all different Indigenous nations in Canada, which are vastly different from one another and have uh, huge differences in legal systems, culture, language. And it really assumes that they're all the same. Um, And of course, um, some of the more famous uh, impositions of the Indian Act are the the prohibition of indigenous um, uh, customs and uh, celebrations, the important customs like the potlatch or the sun dance. Um, So... Uh, I could go on and on about all the ways in which the uh, Indian Act was destructive. And I I think the main thing that I would want people to take away from, if they don't know it already, is that this was intentional. It wasn't, like, accidental. It's very clear that the framers of this legislation really meant uh, to destroy Indigenous nations.
0: In the book, you introduce us to many fascinating characters, such as Arik Wente and Claude Delormier. How do their stories help us understand the intersection of indigenous and colonial law?
1: Well, Araguante, uh, was, uh, an indigenous man from Gunawague, He was the very first one to decide to try to take one of his internal conflicts in the community. Uh, he, he had many, but he was a businessman, a hotel owner, ferry operator. He did all kinds of things, but he, um, he wanted to, he, he clearly was someone who thought he could make more money or have more freedom under colonial law than under the law uh, laws of his own community. And so he started taking some people from his community to court in Montreal instead of taking his issues to, uh, to his own leaders. And so that's, we see that's the first time in all of um, lower Canadian history that an indigenous person did that, and uh, and it really was taken very seriously by the Ganawage leaders at the time, who argued to the Canadian governor or the the Lower Canadian governor at the time, saying, "This is none of the court's business. This is none of Montreal's business. What goes on in our community and the disputes we have between our citizens, and uh, and <clears throat> you can you could tell it was a it was a the Uh, An interesting and important moment for everyone involved, very tense. And Araguande both uh, kept doing it and other people started following in his footsteps. Um, But also he was ejected from the community. He was um, physically carried out of the community and told never to come back because he um, basically was considered to be treasonous to his own people for having done that. So, um, and Deloria May is an example of a white man who um, initially uh, seemed to be willing to live by the rules of the community, by the laws of Kahnawake after he married a Kahnawake w- woman. Um, and then after he sort of got comfortable in the community, he started not abiding by the rules and started buying up land and in ways that were against Kahnawake law and also um, using his connections outside of the community and his connections in the Department of Indian Affairs in order to undermine the authority of Ganawaga uh, chiefs. So you have two examples here of, of people who act in ways that we, you know, people around us act. It's not, uh, it's not that these men were monsters. Um, and of course, they uh, they had families. They were they were people. I think, as a historian, we always have we have um, a sort of a challenge in a situation like this. I don't want to like demonize people like that, but it's very clear in hindsight that their actions did sort of undermine the sovereignty, of, and the law uh, in of of the chiefs uh, and uh, the way things had been done up until that point. Um, so uh, other than that, I, I wasn't making any any. Um, argument about their character, but very much about uh, about how these um, the actions of these men destabilized um, Gunawage, um sovereignty as a nation and uh, and the chiefs acted with great concern. in fact they they drew up a, a list of laws for the very first time that they wrote down. Uh, so that's some one of the things that I analyze in the book as well in 1801. List of laws that the chiefs wrote down as a response um, to Araguante's challenge.
0: One of my favorite chapters in the book explores the Wallbank survey. Can you tell us about William Wallbank and why his work is important?
1: Yeah, well, Wallbank is, uh, is was a young uh, McGill graduate to, uh, who who had just finished his degree in engineering, and he won a, a contract to uh, conduct a survey of the boundary of, of Kahnawake at first. So he, uh, this is something the chiefs had been asking for for a long, long time. They did, uh, the Department of Indian Affairs kept saying, uh, sure, we'll do it, we'll do it, but we should also uh, survey the inside of the reserve. Uh, they, started, this, they were just starting to call it a reserve at this time. Up until then, uh, it was either called Indian lands or a seigneurie. And so, uh, land was held within Ganawage according to Ganawage law, according to Ganawage custom, uh, and uh, and this was something that the Department of Indian Affairs couldn't abide. It was impossible for them to know what was going on. They couldn't understand uh, who was uh, who owned which piece of land, what the ownership even meant. Um, and so it was impossible for them to exert any kind of power over any of those situations. Um, so they really wanted to survey the land inside to figure out uh, so they could put names and numbers on each piece of land and also to draw lines very neatly around everything. And um, uh, But the chiefs always uh, resisted this. They said, no, we don't want the... Um, we don't want the survey inside of our our own community. Uh, that's our business. What we do want is this boundary surveyed around the community, in order to protect our lands from the farmers who every year take a little bit more and move move boundary markers. And so, uh, Wallbank uh, got the first contract, and then the the Department of Indian Affairs. Uh, launched right into the internal survey of the reserve against the wishes of the chiefs. And this is at the very same time as the traditional government in Gunawage is being undermined in all kinds of ways. So the chiefs have a difficult time resisting it. Um, But lots of people in Kahnawake do try different ways to stop this, lying to the surveyor, uh, ripping out his stakes. So it took years and years and years, and Wallbank eventually sort of gave up, frustrated. Um, But I write about it in quite quite some detail. So if you're interested in those questions, uh, I encourage you to read chapter six of the book. Um, It's very much about how... um, it's one example of how private property begins, because I think that that was always one of the questions that animated my research from the very beginning: was who was the first person who had a deed? How did they get it? Um, who did they know in order to get it? How much did they pay? Who what, did, pe- did the indigenous people who you, who owned it before then agree to this? I asked all those kind of questions and this is one example of one way it was done where uh, where it was this big attempt, a very expensive attempt to survey and completely remake the territory of this reserve and the goal also was to uh, turn the reserve into a municipality that would be just like any other municipality in Canada. And that part, uh, people in Gonawage managed to thwart. But there were other parts of that survey that stuck. So that today's uh, map, uh, cadastral map or land ownership map in Gonawage is still very much along the lines of what Wallbank drew on his piece of paper.
0: Yeah, one of my favorite parts of the book is all the maps that you include. So you get a real good sense of the land that you're, that you're talking about. Now, in the conclusion you write, and I'll quote that this book does not have a very satisfying ending, and for a reason. Can you tell us why? Well,
1: uh, yeah, it's kind of sad, right? Everyone wants a nice, a good ending to a book, um, and a happy ending, preferably. But I didn't feel I could do that, um, the, this, partly because the story doesn't end at the end uh, or at the beginning of the 20th century where the book ends. There's, the story continues uh, the the colonial interference continues and in some ways gets worse right because uh, I didn't wasn't able to write about it but the the st Lawrence Seaway comes through in the late 1950s and dispossesses and um, dispossesses a whole bunch of people uh, kind of wrecks the community's access to to the st. Lawrence which uh, which had been the core um, raison d'être of why the community was there in the first place and, um, and led to, to the Oka crisis or the Ganassatage resistance in 1990. There's, there are direct lines between all of the kind of colonialism that I'm describing. So the place where I end the book is sort of, it, it is unsatisfying to me also and probably to the readers as well. So, But it goes right along with the argument that's core to the book, which is that this stuff that I'm describing, the colonialism that I'm describing, the interference, the dispossession, the attacks on indigenous culture, the attacks on indigenous sovereignty, the deception, all of that continues today. Every single thing I think that I, that I describe in the book, you can find a modern corollary for. Uh, And that's something that I learned as a graduate student. That's something that really came... My eyes were really opened to the fact that what I was reading in the archives from the 19th century are still things that we're reading about in the newspapers today. There's still things that are happening to Indigenous people today. There's still things that our governments are doing today. And so when I say my book doesn't have a satisfying ending... Um, I really mean it, and I want one day to write a book that ends on a happier note, and I really feel that it's up to me, and it's up to you, and it's up to all of us to work towards uh, an ending that is more satisfying, and that includes um, the... um, Um, A kind of reconciliation, a kind of reckoning with our own history, a kind of uh, response of all of us individually and collectively to our own history and and a a positive, active response that we can do something about it and work towards the the Canada that we want uh, our children to live in.
0: Daniel, thanks so much for talking to us today. I wanted to let you know that I'll be assigning your book in my Indigenous Non-Indigenous Relations Seminar next year. It's such a good example. And it is a call to action to keep up the research and and keep talking about these issues and keep researching those, those issues. So thank you very much. My guest today has been Daniel Rook. He is the author of The Law and the Land, The Settler Colonial Invasion of Ganawake in 19th Century Canada, published by UBC Press for the Osgoode Society for Canadian Legal History in 2021. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can learn more about the Champlain Society and please follow us on Twitter. We always appreciate likes and shares on social media. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We would like to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Nicole Byrne. This interview was recorded on February 7th, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team.